0: Thank you, Rob. Well, we just got back this weekend from a retreat. The elders uh, and staff went on a retreat this weekend, had a great time praying for you, talking about the church and uh, what the Lord is doing, and talked about leadership and what does leadership look like for a church that's mostly not gathering. That's us. So uh, we had a very good weekend. And a couple of announcements. One is um, Operation Christmas Child. You uh, can see a couple boxes. There's some out there. Don't forget Operation Christmas Child. You have several options here. You can go online and actually prepare the box online. You can take a picture of yourself, sign stuff, I think, and all of that. You can prepare a box, and you can bring it with you either on Sunday or any time that we're open during the week, or we have curbside uh, pickup, uh, drop-off, really. So uh, we'll have it posted this week where you can just come by, and, and there'll be somebody here to meet you at your car, and you can drop it off that way. So you have several choices. You know, all around the world, kids are the same they don't understand this virus. That's our issue, not theirs. They understand fun. And uh, it means a lot to children all around the world to be given a gift at Christmas time. It's just one of the things that our church and churches all around the country and other countries do to bless the children of our world. Okay, um, don't forget to look online for Christian education, what's going on, Parenting, Love and Logic Way, things like that. Uh, Bible study on Tuesday night, things of those of that nature that 's all on our website. You can go there and find it okay <clears throat> all week long i 've been struggling just to be honest with you um, for not for the reasons that you think actually. Uh, the election is part of it, but again, not for the reasons that you think. I struggled all week because of two decisions that impact our church: one is the election and the other one is the new public health order. You've all seen the results coming back up. And so our state is uh, trying to be very proactive and careful in protecting us. I don't have a problem with that. But from a theological perspective, both of those have an impact that uh, we should think about, we should talk about. That's what I want to talk about this morning. So let me first of all start with the new health order. Um, I was asked to just share with you, uh, the county knows that we're doing a great job. Okay, So we have, I put that on my email, we have the blessing to continue. Uh, we don't always get it right, sometimes we do it a little bit wrong, but the, we, we are complying with the spirit of the law to keep people safe. And I'm so thankful, the elders are so thankful that we have not had a uh, an issue with this virus in our church. The Lord is protecting us. I think it's a combination of us working together with the Lord. He's blessing us and protecting us and we're being careful. So thank you very much for doing that. So my struggle with the health order has nothing to do with science. Honestly, it's not my field. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a politician. If I try to speak in science, you're really going to be in trouble. Okay. If I try to speak on politics, you're going to be in trouble. My my really my area as a shepherd is is to think through theologically what's happening with all of this, and that's what I'd like to discuss with you this morning. We uh, we're doing a sermon series. Um, a different kind of faith, we're asking the question, why would we want to, and today, why would we want to reconcile as a church? Or more specifically, why would we want to unify, or in some of your cases, reunify as a church uh, during all that's going on? There's a lot going on right now. The, um, The real question that I ask as a shepherd is what happens when people are not allowed to gather, gather together? I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about society in general. It's devastating, absolutely devastating. You're all—if you have paid attention to the news at all—you're very aware of all of the trends that are increasing. I'm not talking about the virus. I forget the dates now, but the uh, director of the national 800 national 800 hotline suicide hotline said it's climbing at a rate of thousand percent a month, something like that. The, uh, so the domestic violence rates are all increasing. The abuse rates are increasing. The depression rates are cre- increasing. Every counselor that I rely on to help our people is f- are full. Everyone. Okay, that's just the effects in culture. Uh, in society, it's devastating. God made us to be together. He really did. Even people who want to hide from everybody, okay, okay, Even they need community from time to time. Honest, genuine, friendship. And so let's focus it down a little bit more and ask what happens in the church, specifically DCC, when we're not allowed to gather. It's now been eight months since we were allowed to fully embrace each other in community. That's how long it's been. I'm proud of you. We've made it through these eight months, and we've worked really hard to do it it well. But there is some impact. For instance, our staff is beginning to realize that we are probably now in the beginning of a rebuilding phase. I'm not confident our church will ever go back to the way it was a year ago. Okay, we've had people wander away, people leave. I had a, just a couple this week uh, decided to leave the church because of some of the things I've said up front. And uh, I get that. That's just part of being a speaker. I understand it. And I genuinely wish them well. Uh, let's not pretend. That's really hoping they find a church home where they feel more comfortable Many of our people are now disconnected from the community of faith. That's us. And so the truth is we're no longer DCC as we all used to remember it and know it. And that is of concern to me. That's caused me to wrestle with things. So I want to talk about that a little bit more in just a minute. But first let me ask you the question, what's actually the purpose of gathering? Why is it important that we gather? Uh, There's a lot of people that have said over the years that eh, I can find Christ in the mountains. I can find the Lord, not Christ. I can find the Lord. That's a common thing in the mountains. That's true. But you can't find community. Okay. You can't find community. And so what role do we play when we're together? What happens? I'm just going to give you four thoughts. There's many more, but four that you're familiar with. Hebrews 10:24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. There it is. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of the purposes for gathering is just simple encouragement. There's an energy that comes from us being together that you can't find anywhere else. You just can't find it. So our gathering together produces some level of encouragement and energy. In First Corinthians, we find another reason. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is the passage that I often quote at communion. I'm only going to read part of this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, um, starting at verse 18. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, okay, there's a clue. He's talking to a church. When you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt that there have been differences among you Think about these words here that he's penning right now. No doubt there have, been dif- there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Isn't that interesting? Our differences provide a test. They provide a test to find which one of you have God's approval. We'll come back to this in just a moment. Christ had some things to say about this. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He goes on and talks about how in this particular event, it's a church, and they're gathered for communion, and uh, you have the haves uh, honestly abusing the have-nots. They're taking from the poor, and it's creating all this dissension in the church. So he goes on after he talks about the communion, Uh, Practice, And he said, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. This is a good thing to remember. I wish I could tell all of our government leaders this. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat the bread and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Okay? So, if we do it in an unworthy manner, we experience the Lord's um, the Lord's discipline, and that's to, to be remembered. One of the reasons we gather is to celebrate the Lord's communion, the Lord's table together, and all that that means. Well, we can celebrate it on our own. I get it, but it's designed to be celebrated together as a community. That's one of the reasons we gather. There's something very special that happens. All the dominations have a slightly different take on what happens. But I firmly believe that when we together celebrate communion, there's an element of grace that's different than if we don't do it. And so we miss that over time. So that's another reason. So one is encouragement. Another one is a chance to celebrate Communion together. And then there's one also in First Corinthians back in chapter 3, which you're all familiar with. And that is that, w- that uh, we gather to be the spiritual temple of God. This is First Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are the one temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, here's another thing we should tell our government leaders. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. It's a strong warning. And it's repeated more than once. For God's temple is sacred. And you are that temple. It's one body. Not many bodies. It's one body of Christ. There's many faith communities. But there's only one body. And that's Sacred to the Lord. That's how much he thinks of it. And finally in Ephesians 4, another very famous passage. Um, why is it important that we gather together? Because this is a place where we were built up. This is a place where we encourage. This is a place where we, to use a good old-fashioned term, edified. This is a place where we come together. This is a place where we are equipped. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, he says he gave gifts to his people. Starting in verse 11. Here's the gifts. Christ himself gave gifts. He gave the apostles. These are the gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. Those are the gifts. These are gifts of people. Other spiritual gifts are gifts of service and things like that. But these are gifts of people. Okay? I, I want to be a gift to you. I hope you think of me that way. I am a gift. When we are separated, you cannot enjoy me as a gift. Okay? We have to be together. To enjoy these gifts. Because he goes on, and here's what he says. He gave these gifts to equip his people, that's all of you, for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all attain or reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Till we all reach the unity. That's what we're talking about today. Why would we want to unify or reunify after all that's going on? So we all receive unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining together, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then, okay, now listen to this because this plays into what I'm going to say in just a minute. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Firstly, it's what I think of when I think of politics, okay? The deeper our faith, the more in love we are with the Lord, the more stable we are and the less sub- sus- subject we are to the deceitful schemes and every wind of idea that floats across our path, Okay? That's one of the reasons we gather together. Instead, speaking the truth in love, you know me all by now. I don't mind talking to you about things, do I? If it's in the Bible, I don't mind talking about it. Sometimes I'll have to say you may have to let your children out because it's a little X-rated, but I don't mind talking about it. You won't find judgment. You won't find condemnation, but you will find truth. That's what you'll find. That's what this gift of apostle, I mean, of a pastor teacher brings to the congregation is truth. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. From him, Christ, the whole body, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You see, each local fellowship is designed by God to grow itself up in love. We have the Holy Spirit and He gives us gifts. That's each other. And my gift happens to be shepherding, pastor, teacher, helping you understand things, helping you wrestle with things in what I consider to be a biblically appropriate manner, not a politically appropriate manner, not an appropriate manner regarding safety and health. It's not my field, but to think in terms of the scriptures. So, Here's the real question I want to get in this part of my concern, my struggle. What is the result of not gathering? What's the result of not gathering? The Lord actually gives us some insight into that in a parable. parable of the sower. You've all heard about it. Probably had it read to you. We're going to read it together. I'm going to read it to you. It's Matthew 13. The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and he sat in it while all the people were stood on the shore. And he told them many parables, and here's one of the parables. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked out the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop. A hundred, sixty, and thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. It's a favorite phrase of Jesus. Whoever has the Holy Spirit, let them take note of what this means. Okay, I don't know much about agriculture I was raised on the beach. I never even had a garden. I need an interpretation. Fortunately, Jesus provides one. My only experience at gardening growing up was my dad had a garden and he put me in charge of the cucumbers. So I watered the cucumbers and I went out and checked them every day. They're getting a little bigger. I thought they're getting a little bigger. My brother, my younger brother, was in charge of potatoes. We couldn't figure out why we weren't producing any potatoes until my dad went out one time to watch him. He was digging the plants up, looking at them, and then putting them back in the ground. Apparently, that's not good for potatoes because they didn't grow. That's my only experience. So Jesus gives us insight, and this relates to us as a church. It's in Matthew, the same chapter, verse 18. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom... And does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in the heart. This is the seed sown along the path. This is what I experience in bars, coffee shops, and restaurants, talking to people. You've heard me say, after seven and a half years, I've only met one person that doesn't have a faith background. That's a whole lot of coffees and meals with people that have faith backgrounds and walked away. They all have reasons. They're typically rejecting religiosity, control. How do you tell a high schooler um, whose pastor stopped the high school program and moved the funds over to put better decorations in the church? How do you tell a high schooler that? 20 years later, they're still angry about it. How do you tell people that are not accepted, they're shunned because of you name the sin, whatever it is they 're shunned because of that, right? How do you tell them that God is gracious and good and loving when these things happen? This is that first group that the gospel never really took a deep root, and these people don 't even know what they could have had and what they gave up. But then he goes on: the seed falling on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word. And at once it receives it with they receive it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the world, they quickly fall away. People stop coming. Simple tests. Persecution. Struggles. We have a lot of that right now in our world, don't we? And we have people falling away. But then he goes on from there. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life, the worries of this life, and the deceitfulness of wealth, that's an example, choke the word, making it unfruitful. I think in my lifetime, this is the most afraid the church has been, that I've experienced. The most afraid the worries of this life and you know what these people are slipping away too when I first got here Mark told me for those of you that don't know Mark is our last assistant pastor Mark told me there's no way we compete can compete with entertainment and stress that's right this is heaven's playground would you prefer to go skiing or come to church would you prefer to go hiking or come to church? Would you prefer to go four-wheeling, sailing? What would you prefer? Watch football? Just escape because you're feeling overwhelmed? Or come to church? I can't answer the question. I'm just raising the questions. You're the ones that have to look in the mirror. Then you have the last one. The seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it one of the questions I was asked this weekend by one of the elders what happened to the church the church in America is declining at a rate of 5,000 people a day has been for 10 years what happened you know what part of it is We have very few Christians that understand the word theologically educated. There was a day a long time ago when to be a pastor, it was really wise to have a doctorate, doctorate of theology, doctorate of philosophy, whatever it is. As time has gone by, those credentials have gotten less and less important. We have whole denominations now that encourage their pastors not to go get equipped. And so what happens is theology becomes sound bites. So different than social media and politics become sound bites. Justification, just as if I'd never sinned. Sorry, but that's about as pathetic a description you could give on justification. One of the richest words in the entire history of Christianity in the Bible. And I, I don't mean it to be condescending. I don't mean to be critical. Don't mean to to say you have to have a doctor to, to, to be a Christian, but you have to understand. And that's where the church has failed. I told the elders, I suspect if I were to give them an exam and have them explain justification, sanctification, transformation, redemption, all the great words that we throw out all the time, I wonder how many of them could actually pass it. And that's where my gift comes into play, to help you understand what these deep truths are Because that's what he said. The seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160, 30 times what was sown. If you don't have that understanding, you're in danger of the first three wandering away. And we're experiencing that as a church. You see, what happens is when when the church... Is not able to gather. People's faith grows cold, if we're not careful, and they disconnect from church. The Hebrew concept of faith and belief is captured um, in this final example. When we use the word belief in the modern world, that's cognitive assent. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I know about Jesus, but it's an academic faith. The Hebrews would have never, never accepted that, the Jews, you see, the concept of faith means that your life is different. I will know that you believe when your life changes. So when I see people come to Christ, part of me is a skeptic. There's a part of me that says, yeah, we'll just wait and see. A year from today, I'll know. Not because I'm a judge or God, but because you have the Holy Spirit and you cannot not change. Philippians 1.6. I am confident of this very thing, he who began a good work in you will complete it. You know the famous serendipity prayer, right? It's talking to the Lord, and there's two pr- footprints in the sand, two sets, and all of a sudden there's one, and the person asks, "What's that?" And Jesus says, That's "Where I carried you." There's actually a better one on social media. Well, what's that line? That's where he dragged you kicking and screaming. Okay. Once you turn to Christ, if your faith is authentic and the Holy Spirit becomes joined with you, then you have no choice. You can run with joy, or you can get drug, kicking and screaming. I had a first person in the first service with a, a injury to the leg and in a, a cast and all that. Wrote me a text afterwards and said. This must be my version of getting drug, kicking, and screaming. <laughs> Couldn't walk because of the gas. Not very well. Those are our choices. That's what happens. That's the, that's the biblical concept of faith. If your faith is real, you cannot stay in the same place. That's why Jesus said on these examples, their faith isn't real. They wander away. So what happens when, our, when uh, we are not gathered? <clears throat> People's faith grows cold disconnected from life so here's my question which one of those are you and for those of you that are listening online thank you for joining us The question is the same as for you which in this parable which person are you which one are you let me just say a quick word about the election it's not about who won I have my own personal views like you do but that's not where the struggle comes it's not, it's not about who won honestly it's about what's happening to our country You know, there was a day many years ago when um, the difference in the parties was defined pretty much around strategy. You know, my my parents, one parent was a Democrat, one was a Republican. They used to laugh at each other after the election because they canceled each other out. And you could have conversations with people. The values were similar. The strategies were different. Both groups wanted to feed the poor. What I've observed in my seven and a half years of meeting with people in bars and coffee shops is there is an increasing trend that it's about values, not strategies. That's how divided we are. So when I saw how divided the nation was, I was deeply saddened this week. I've been wrestling with it all week. The good news is, this is where the church comes in. That is our job. When you put these two together, this is a point in time where our church and all the other churches are at their greatest risk that I've seen in a long time, of faith growing cold and a divided people. So what are we going to do to reunify? That's what leadership is all about. That's what shepherding is about. You see, the reason why he uses the metaphor sheep, not to be condescending, sheep naturally wander. They naturally wander. And so your staff and your elders carry a very deep burden right now for you and for you that are listening online and watching. I would suggest some things, okay? I'm going to close with one passage. But first, I would suggest that the beginning point is to pray earnestly, earnestly for God's wisdom and involvement with our with our people and not just our nation all the nations around the world we're not alone I would suggest you pray earnestly secondly is that I would suggest that in keeping with Nehemiah 1 that you continue to develop a repentant heart what did Nehemiah say I'm sorry Lord for my nation we have sinned I'm sorry for my family we have sinned and I'm sorry for me I have sinned that's a repentant heart I would encourage you to keep doing that. Thirdly, learn your theology. Don't get swept, blown away by every wind of doctrine, every idea, every deceitful scheme. Learn it. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5. This is where we'll close. 2 Corinthians 5.14. For Christ's love compels us. What compels you? Skiing, is that what compels you? What is it? Hiking? What compels you? Does Christ's love compel you? For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced. Grow your faith, deepen it. That's the antidote. That's the answer to stability. We are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all. Why? Why? So that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Don't worry about who won the election. But for him who died and was raised again, we live for Christ. So from now on, we regard no one. This is one of the most startling verses in the Bible. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view No longer a scarlet A for adultery. No longer a scarlet H for homosexuality. There's no scarlet R for Republican. There's no scarlet D for Democrat. We don't look at people that way anymore. Why is he saying this to us? I'll tell you why. This is the this is the subject of the retreat all weekend. The future is our certainty. Ephesians 2, we are right now seated at the right hand of Christ. The future is our certainty, but it's not their certainty. We already know what the certainty is. Love one another, forgive one another. All of these things that we read, that's the reality of the world we live in. He goes on to say, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do not do so any longer. He regarded Christ from a human perspective. Had to change his view, but look what he says then. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. You belong to the new reality, the new creation, which is now a certainty in your life. And it's our job to live it out. The question isn't, What is the future? We already know that. Love one another. Forgive one another. Carry one of those burdens. That's the certainty of the future. The question is, how do we bring the future into our present world so that they can taste it and experience it? Does that make sense? The future is already certain. You don't have to guess at it. We already know. We already know. And if the future is already certain, then we don't have to be tossed about by all of these things that are going on in culture. We don't have to be afraid. So what does it take to reunify? Set aside your differences. Deepen your faith. Pray earnestly. Understand the times that we live in. You are part of the new creation, not the present world. Father, thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us a clear picture of what that looks like. We're so very grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you watching online, first of all, thank you for joining us. Uh, This now concludes the online portion of our service. Thank you. Have a great day.